The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, please, and go to the book of Ephesians. The life of a Christian is a spiritual battle. We've been called out of the devil's domain of darkness to follow Christ, taking up our cross and leaving everything behind to walk where and how he walked and lived. It's a call to die to self, to die to the world, to die to the flesh and the devil and live to God. It is, in fact, a soldier's life. A soldier takes off his civilian clothing and leaves behind his civilian life and he puts on the military clothing and he walks behind and he follows his commanding officer. It is a call which when we obey it, the devil hates that, our response to that call. He will set all of his schemes and all of his forces and methods against us to attempt us to dissuade us from following Jesus Christ. We cannot walk this track in our own strength. It's impossible. So we must first plead with God for his strengthening of us. But we are also commanded to equip ourselves to enable us to endure the devil's attacks and onslaughts. Our willing obedience to the command of God here in verse in chapter 6 of Ephesians is one small piece of evidence of our true genuine salvation. Only those who truly believe, will truly obey, because we love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our obedience ensures our endurance, and our endurance is guaranteed by God, who will finish that work in us, which he began. Well, to live this soldier's life of the Christian, we're to follow the commands of the captains of our soul. The captain of our soul is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to recap what we've seen already in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, we can see there that we're to plead to God for strength to power, sorry, strengthen us with power in the inner man. We're to fasten on the belt of truth of God around us, tightly to us. The idea is to cling it onto us and tightly tie it. We're to clothe ourselves in the breastplate of Christ's righteousness and we're to fasten onto our feet the assurance that comes from the gospel of peace. We're to pick up the shield of faith as we saw last week and we're to be convinced that God is able to keep his promises. We're to be obedient to the commands that God attaches to those promises. God makes commands which we trust him. Sorry, he makes promises which we trust that he's able to keep, and he attaches to those promises commands that we are to be obedient to. And now this morning we want to look at Ephesians 6 and verse uh, 10 and verse 17 at taking up and receiving the helmet of salvation, which is the hope of salvation. I'm going to read this verse, and then I want to take over to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8, and we'll read a verse there. So let's read uh, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 for context, and then we'll jump over to 1 Thessalonians 5. The Bible says, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In verse 17 again, and take the helmet of salvation. Now flip over to First Thessalonians chapter 5, and Paul has a parallel statement here, which he expands on just slightly, why we want to go there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. And Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And he adds that one little phrase in there, the hope of salvation. The helmet that we are to put on is a helmet that's a hope of our salvation. Let's ask for God's blessing and help, shall we? Loving Father, as we come again before your open word, we pray, O God, that the Spirit of God would meet us. As we've been praying and been singing, O God, we give thanks for his filling. And now we pray, O God, that he would open the scriptures to us and he would explain them and teach us the truth of the scripture. Father, we ask you for hearts that are submissive to your will and to your word, hearts to hear what you would say to each of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Roman helmet was basically a thick, heavy leather skull cap that would fit around the top of the head. And it was fitted with raised iron straps or bosses, they're called, that would go from side to side and front to rear. And often you would see that underneath that strap there would be a layer of bronze or maybe iron put on the Excuse me, there was steel available, but only the Roman centurions, the higher ranking officers, would have a steel helmet with the big brush-like plume. You usually see those in the movies. And what it was designed to do was to protect the head and the neck. There's a big flat piece that stuck out the back here. This would protect the back of the neck and maybe keep the sun off the poor soldier's head in those hot places. And it was designed to protect him from the arrows and the sword blows of the enemy. And as I said earlier, we don't want to take the analogy of Paul too far. It's just descriptive language to help us understand how these concepts actually apply into the life. In a very simple way, Paul's analogy of the helmet describes the protection that the hope of salvation provides to our thinking and our mindset. The hope of salvation protects us from the devil's assaults. And we'll see how it does that towards the end of the message. So first of all, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Number one, what is hope? What does it mean? Now, biblically, we could define hope as an earnest expectation of God fulfilling his promises. And the question you might think of right away is, well, what's the difference between faith and hope? Are they the same thing? And the answer is no, they're not. 
They're similar and they have a little bit of overlap perhaps, but they're not exactly the same thing. Faith is the conviction that God is able to keep his promises, which then drives our obedience to those commands. But hope is the earnest expectation, the longing of our hearts to, for God to fulfill his promises. It's a longing of our, of our hearts for God to fulfill his promises and for us to receive them. To give you an example, I believe, I have faith that God is able and God is going to finish his work in me. And so in obedience to Christ and working out my salvation, I deny myself. I take up my cross. I die to self and the world and the flesh. And I put on the armor of God. Those are all acts of obedience, trusting that God is able to keep his promises. But I also have a hope. I have a hope that one day his work will be finished in me. That one day I'm going to be perfected. Now the work is, it seems like the work is going so slowly and I'm making such little ground. And I still think maybe one day the Lord is going to finish this work and all that's left to be done in me will be finished in a moment. I have a hope that I will be like Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. I have a hope that I will see Christ as He is, and I will know Christ to a much higher degree than I know Him now. So you can say it like this almost a simple way is, faith trusts in God to keep His promises, and hope eagerly expects and longs for God to fulfill His promises. Faith rests in God. It trusts God that God is able, like a little boy putting his hand out, his hands up to his father, and the father reaches down and he picks him up. And as he puts his hands up, he's trusting his father to be able to grab him up. And as he lifts him up, the little boy has that hope his father will hold him close, and there'll be a great joy and intimacy there. The question, of course, is why do we need hope? What, what does hope come from in that sense? Sickness and death. Age and aging, troubled, broken relationships, financial stresses, they all create within us a longing within us for something better. We're always looking for something better. We work hard in the hope of a better life. There's also the sinful, destructive drive of society that grieves the souls of men and it creates within us a longing for something better. We look around this world. We want to see the world improve. We want to see things get better. As Christians, we need hope. But praise God in Christ, we have that hope. There's a never-ending internal struggle between the old sinful nature and the new man, new woman in Christ that creates a longing, a hope for what's yet to come, which is so much better. It's a longing for the work to be finished. I don't know about you, but there are days when I get up and I think, Lord, I just can't wait for this, this life to be over. I can't wait for the fact of being able to see Christ face to face. I can't wait for the work in me to be finished and I'll no longer struggle and wrestle with those old sinful tendencies and I'll have to keep striving to put off the old man and keep striving to put on the new man. I just can't wait for it to be over. There's a longing, there's a hope in me that it's going to happen. And it rests in the surety that God makes promises and keeps promises. It's a longing for the work to be finished, to see Christ. The promises we've received create a longing for their fulfillment. Listen to what Bible, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. 
The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's a hope. There's a hope of an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us. Verse 5 goes on, We by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We long to see Christ. We long to receive that inheritance that's been carefully put away and guarded for us. We long to have the work in us finished. What's the basis of our hope? How do you know for sure that God is going to fulfill His promises? God's faithfulness to keep His past promises gives us hope that He will keep His future promises. God promised us that we would know tremendous peace and joy in trusting and obeying Jesus Christ. And the moment we begin to trust Christ, the moment we put our hands to the plow to begin to obey and walk with Him, you know what we discovered? Peace inside and a joy inside. I talk to people who have just come to know Christ. And one of the things they tell me over and over again, I hear the same story. There was a tremendous peace in my heart. There was a great joy in my heart that I now knew my sins were forgiven. I knew my Savior. I knew I had a hope and a promise waiting for me. God's faithfulness to keep His past promises gives us the hope that He will keep His future promises. God promised us that He would hear and answer our prayers. We have cried out at different times in our life and prayed and pleaded with God for answers to prayer. I never forget when we first started Casey Bible Church six, seven years ago, and I was looking for a place to rent for a facility. And everywhere I looked, I couldn't find anything. There was no, every door got slammed in my face. And I got a bit frustrated and I went out and I walked around my neighborhood and I just began to cry out to God, Lord, please, we need a place to meet. We need a facility. We can't keep jamming uh, 15, 20 people in our front living room. It's just not going to work. And I went around. As I was walking around, I came back into my house. I sat down and I started to Skype with my dad just to share some of the concerns I had. And bing, the email went off. A lady who had two hours before just told me, forget it. You'll never get a place in this building. It's always full on Sunday. It's never free on Sunday. She was just emailing to tell me that the person who had it before us would just resign and was moving out and we could have it if we want. In fact, I was so recent in her memory, she gave it to us. The very first thing jumped us to the top of the list, as it turns out. God answers prayer. And one of the things that gives us hope about God is that we can see how his past keeping of his promises fuels up our hope that he will keep these promises. And we keep carrying on in the hope that God will do it. We base our hope in God's faithfulness. Paul's great example in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, 
verses 9 and 10. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us in the past from such deadly peril. He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You see what he's saying? In the past, God delivered us. We had the sentence of death and God delivered us. And we have set our hope on Him because He delivered us in the past. He will deliver us again. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a hope. It's not some vain hope. It's not a futile hope like hoping that some footy team's going to win the premiership or hoping that some hockey team's going to win the grand final or hoping that maybe you know your old car will make it another thousand kilometers. It's not a feign, forlorn hope that's got no basis in reality. Our hope is based in God's faithfulness. He keeps His promises. What's the heart of our hope? That's Christ's resurrection. The greatest example of God's faithfulness is seen in Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 19, the Bible says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ's victory over sin and death is our victory over sin and death. Christ's resurrection when he was raised from the dead and declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, that's the heart of our hope because Christ has been raised. The work of God is stamped with God's amen as he raises Christ from the dead. God who raised him up promised to raise up us also and hope empowers us to live this Christian life without despair in the struggle and suffering of the present. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. God in his faithfulness to Jesus raised him from the dead and God in his faithfulness to us will finish the work he began in us. So what happens when there is no hope? Why should there be no hope for us? Well, there are only, what are the only circumstances we have for having no hope? And you can find that in Ephesians 2 verse 12. The Bible says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, if you do not know Jesus Christ and you don't follow Him as your Lord and Savior, if you're continuing to live in rebellion and disobedience to God, if your sins are unforgiven by God's grace through faith, then you have the sure expectation of God's anger against you, separated from Christ, you have no hope. The Bible makes it absolutely clear. Alienated and separated from God without Christ, we have no hope whatsoever. But there is, the Bible tells us very clearly, there is salvation from God's wrath. There is a salvation that gives us hope. The hope like a helmet that protects us from the devil's assaults. So the second question we want to ask is this, what is salvation? Salvation is in, if you like, the one major theme of the whole Bible. Salvation is God's great work to rescue us. 
And we've talked about this a lot over the last months, and so I'm just going to go through and just lay down for you all the explanation of what salvation is and give you lots of verses. You have a little note sheet in your bullet, and you can go home and look all those verses up and unpack them all for yourself. I just want to lay it out for you so you see in a summary sense what salvation is. In Ephesians 1, salvation is a plan prepared by God before creation. Salvation is God's great work to rescue us. In 2 Corinthians 5, salvation is being moved by God from dead in sin to alive in Christ. In Ephesians 2, salvation is being changed by God from sinners facing God's furious wrath, changed into saints and sons and daughters enjoying God's gracious adoption. In Romans 6, salvation is God's work to set us free from slavery to sin. And salvation is God's work to purchase our forgiveness of sins. In Romans 4.22, salvation is being declared right by God through faith. In Romans 5 verse 1, salvation is being reconciled to God. It's a gift of God's grace through faith, not works. And there's only one, like we just said, who can bring about such a great salvation. It's only God and God alone that can save us. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, it is only God who possesses the omnipotent power to save. It's only God who has the immeasurable grace to save us. In Luke 19 and verse 10, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, came with a singular purpose to seek and save the lost. In 1 Peter 3, Christ died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. In Romans 6.23, Christ died to pay the wages that were demanded by your sin and mine. Christ is the sinless Son of God. Truly God and truly man is the only one qualified to be our all-sufficient Savior. None other could die for the sins of others. God planned our salvation. God purchased our salvation through Christ's death. God calls us to receive that work for ourselves. So how does that salvation become ours? Salvation is received, like we've said so many times. I want to say it again because it's worth saying. It's the only way to know God. Salvation is received by repentance of sin and faith in God. In Mark 1.15, Jesus preached his first words in the first gospel written about him. He preached repentance of sin, faith in God, and following him, obedience. In Acts 2, the first sermon preached on the beginning of Pentecost, the beginning of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh, and the churches picked up with all the Gentiles and all the Jews. Peter preached repentance and faith and obedience. In Acts 20, verse 1, in Romans and Galatians, and most of the epistles that Paul wrote, he preached and taught and wrote expansively about the fact that salvation is only received through repentance of sin and faith in God. In Romans 10, Paul added this phrase. He said that we are to confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God raised Christ from the dead and will be saved. And the question that just lies out in front of all of us this morning is, are you saved? Do you know what it is to be saved from sin? Do you know what it is to be saved from the righteous anger of a holy God who is furiously angry with us for our sin? Do you know what it is to have that peace and that joy and that hope inside because you have been saved? That's a question every one of us has got to answer. 
Are you rescued? Are you set free? Do you still carry around the guilt of sin? Do you still carry around in your heart all the deep load and the weight of a conscience that's guilty and screaming out against you? You don't know God. You have no hope. God provides a salvation, a rescue from sin. He provides a way out. Salvation means great blessing. In Ephesians 1, as we are talking about a few minutes ago, it means having the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's the down payment towards our future salvation. In 1 John, it means being filled with the love for God and love for others. In 1 Peter 3, verse 8, it means having unspeakable joy in God. There's something massively wrong when a Christian who looks like he's been sucking lemons for the last week says he has a joy in God. There's something wrong there. It's to be a real, genuine joy, a living joy, a light in his eyes, a spring in his step because he knows his sins are forgiven. In 1 Peter 3, 8, unspeakable joy. In Romans 5, it's having peace with God and our fellow men. In 1 Peter 3, 9, it's having hope in God to fulfill his future promises. So salvation can be seen this way. It's past and it's present and it's future. Salvation is not a momentary thing. It is in some senses, but it's also a lifelong thing. It starts now and extends all the way to when we stand face to face before Christ. Scripture describes the past dimensions of salvation like this. In Romans 3, we have been justified by God. We've been declared right in God's sight. It's like God the judge takes his gavel and he, and he smacks the bench and says, justified, declared right in my sight. In Ephesians 1, we have been redeemed. We've been brought back been pried loose from the wrath of God. In Romans 5, we have been reconciled to God. We have right now, as men and women of faith, a relationship with the living God. We've had those things. It's past tense. But Scripture also describes a present dimension of salvation. The Holy Spirit is working in us to set us apart to God. We are now, this moment now, striving to obey God and grow in our faith. We're striving now throughout all of our life to grow in holiness before God. But Scripture also describes the future dimension of salvation. When Christ returns, may it be soon. Maybe before I even finish this sermon, may Christ return. The Bible says we'll be caught up to meet him in the air. The Bible also says we'll be changed. His work in us will be finally fully finished in a moment. All those things left to do, God in his grace and his power will finish that work. We'll be changed. We'll be given a glorified body. We will see our Savior as he is in all of his glory, all of his power as the coming God. The Savior of the world who is coming to judge. And we will experience Christ's presence in new resurrected body. No longer will we be burdened by the presence of sin. God will then, as he gathers all the nations together, he will separate his sheep from his goats. And God will preserve us through his sheep, through judgment. And in that sense, our salvation is still future. 
There's coming a time when he will gather all the people, every single person who has ever been born in the face of the earth. He will gather them all together before him. And like a shepherd who separates sheep and goats and gathers his flock to himself, he will go through the crowd and take his crook and he will begin to gather. This one belongs to me and this one belongs to me and this one belongs to me. And he'll pull them all aside. And some of those in that group will come forward and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? Did we not preach things? Did we not raise the dead? Did we not do all kinds of great things from you? And Jesus will turn and say, depart from me. I never knew you. And the salvation that we have will be finished in that moment when he rescues us from his own judgment. And he pulls us to himself and says, these are mine. And he will look and he'll look into every eye of each of us that he knows. And he'll say, ah, oh, Con, I remember you. You're mine. Proven. Ah, you're mine. And he'll call us to himself and he'll drive, bring us to one side. Gather us to his right hand. We have a hope. A great hope that God is going to finish the work. We have a hope in our salvation. There is a hope of salvation, as Paul is saying right back in Ephesians six seventeen, that protects the head. So you have to ask the question, how is it that the hope of salvation protects us from the devil's assaults? And here's where hope and it all comes back together. The hope is described, like we said, the helmet is described in, by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, as a hope of salvation as a helmet. It protects us like this. We trust in God. That's faith. That God is able to keep His promises. We display that trust by our obedience to His commands. We recognize and we know that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that so important? Because the Bible describes the Holy Spirit's filling as a down payment. You buy a house, right? Now, nobody buys a house like my grand-grandfather bought a house. My great-grandfather wanted to buy a house. He went down to the bank and he said, I want to buy that house on, in, I think in Bendigo somewhere. Beautiful old farmhouse. And the bank said we need, well, it was probably only $1,000 back then. And he looked in, he said, right. And he started peeling off bills. And when he hit 1000 there you go, 1000 bucks. Great. Here's the deed. Sign here. Done. Not today, right? You go to the bank. I want to buy that little tiny box. Yeah, that'll be $985,000. Month one or something like that. You know, and, you, and you say, oh, how am I going to come up with that? The bank says, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. Don't worry. What, what we need is we just need a deposit. So you give us 10% of $985,000, which is 98.5 or something like that. I don't know. Not very good with math. $98,500. And the bank the whole time through is looking forward to the day when they collect all the rest of that money, right? They want your money. Don't kid yourself. And it's exactly the same with us. If you think about this for a second, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. He brings forth fruit. So when my response is to get angry, the Spirit of God produces the fruit of love. And when my response is to get really impatient and hammer off stupid emails or do dumb things that cause all kinds of problems, the Spirit of God hopefully will put His hands on my hands, pull them off the keyboard, put His hand around my mouth and pull me back and say, stop. And He gives me patience instead of impatience. 
And the Spirit of God begins to work. And he says, you know what? I want to give the church a gift. So I'm going to give every single believer in that church a little gift to use. And that gift will be used. And when they use it and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, they'll use it for my glory and everybody else in the church will benefit. That's the deposit of the Spirit of God. And you know how powerfully the Spirit of God works in your life? Convicting you of sin? Teaching you the Scriptures? Bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace? All that. That's a deposit. You say, how much of a deposit? I don't know. But I do know this much. The deposit is always less than the full, right? And so one day, we're going to receive the full benefit and the full blessing. Now, the Spirit of God isn't given as a deposit. He's given as a deposit on the much greater presence of Christ. And when we stand before God, we will have the full blessing, the full inheritance of what it means to have the work of God in us finished, and what it means to know Christ face to face, what it means to see Him face to face, what it means to be glorified. These are all things to come. You say, how does this hope protect us? Now remember, the helmet goes over the head, right? And you got to protect what's inside this because you can take a sword blow to the, the chest or you can take, someone can take your leg off with a sword or a spear through the arm and you'll probably live. But if they put, they cleave your skull in two with a sword, you're not going to get up from that. So that sword, that helmet's incredibly important. It protects the head. What goes on inside here? This is the part where we do our thinking and our reasoning. This is the part that drives our thoughts and our actions. This is the control center. This is where the thinking is, in most cases it happens. In some cases it's supposed to happen, but it's not much happening, right? And we all met people like that. I look in the mirror, not much going on. You know, there it is. It's the head. It protects us. By protecting our thinking, and we, that thinking is reminded by Scripture. So I want to just spell it out for you like this. The devil comes along to tempt me to give up following Christ. The hope of salvation, as a helmet, it protects me by reminding me in my thinking that there's an inheritance being kept from me. Satan cannot take or mar or defile my inheritance. It's safely kept from me. And so Scripture reminds me in my thinking there's an inheritance that's so much better than anything that Satan can offer you. It goes like this. God calls us to be born again. First Peter 1 again. God calls us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, and in verse 5, sorry, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then verse 8 picks up, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy, inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, it protects me. The hope of salvation that I have protects me by reminding me that God's power is guarding me for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So when the Satan comes on and says, Ah, oh, forget following Jesus. So much more fun to go out and get drunk. It's so much more fun to go, forget, don't go to church. Quit your job as a pastor. You can do other things. And Satan tempts us to turn aside. And I arm my thinking 
inside that helmet hope with a reminder that there's inheritance that's waiting for me. There's inheritance. There's a perfection in what God is doing. And it guards my thinking and it keeps me focused on what's yet to come. In a sense, it takes my eyes from looking down at this world and all my circumstances and the hope lifts my eyes up so all I see is what's coming ahead. That's what it's designed to do. The helmet, by the way, was very, it came tightly across here and there was cheek guards that came down like this and his vision, because of the way it fitted, his vision was totally unobscured. Which is a message in there. So when we focus our vision on Christ and we see Him and we look our eyes off of our circumstance and look up and see Christ, that hope is renewed and refueled for another day. The hope of salvation as a helmet protects me by reminding me that my life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 1 to 3, the Bible says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Satan cannot take or destroy my life because it's hidden with Christ. It's bound up and kept with Him. And that helmet of salvation, the helmet of the hope of salvation says, there's something so much better. And this life, the joy that I know in this life, following and loving and serving Christ, which is such a thrill, is so much better when I see Him face to face and all the hindrances and all the distractions are pushed away. And I will live and know Him face to face in all the glory of His person and His presence. The hope of salvation as a helmet protects me by reminding me that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is just a down payment on the full measure of the glory of God's finished work. The Bible says, Romans 8, 22 to 25, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves... We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Did you catch that? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. What is waiting eagerly summed up in a single syllable word as? Hope, right? Hope is that eager, earnest, waiting, longing for God to fulfill His promises. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Listen, Christian, Satan cannot take the Spirit from you. You can grieve the Spirit. You can hinder the Spirit. The Bible says you can even quench the Spirit. But the Satan cannot ever take it from you. And the presence of the Spirit of God in you, I know some of you, young people, are struggling and wrestling with the reality of your salvation. And you're wrestling through, is God really there? Am I really saved? What's going on? And my one comment back to you is, listen to this. The Spirit of God in you is working, and that tension, that toil, that wrestling movement in which you're struggling to work it all out, is coming from this. 
The Spirit of God is in you, and the old nature and the devil are pounding away at each other, in a sense. If there was no Spirit of God, what would it pound against? Nothing, right? If you weren't alive in Christ, there would be no toil, no wrestling back and forth. Young person, listen. If you're one of those older people too, it happens to all of us, who are seriously wrestling with your faith, read Romans 7. If you think you're alone in this, Paul wrestled with the very same thing. He struggled and wrestled to know for sure. Not know for sure he's saved, but he struggled with the old man and the new man wrestling back and forth. All right? Listen. The helmet of salvation, the helmet of the hope of salvation, protect me by reminding me that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is just a down payment on the full measure of the glory of God, which is coming soon. Satan cannot take the Spirit from us. He cannot take away the redemption of our bodies. We wait eagerly. That's our hope. If the transformation we have already experienced by the Holy Spirit's work in us is this good, think about how much better it will be in the full and finished work of Christ in us. Think of the joy that we have now in Christ. How much greater is it going to be when we're face to face? When all the distractions of this physical realm give way and we see Christ when I see Jesus walking towards me with the scars in his hands and his feet and his side, glorified in all of his beauty, all of that glory filling place, and I see him, and the work in me is finished, and I am glorified like he is. The Bible promises me that. This life already is so much better than the sinful life. How much better more is a life yet to come? That's what protects us. There is a hope of a salvation yet to come. There is a hope of Christ's finished work in us. But as I close, and the time is, is getting short, I'm compelled to ask the other question again. Are you saved? Do you know what it really means to be forgiven of sin? Do you know what it really means to be set free from slavery to sin? You know what it really means to be filled with the Spirit, to have that longing, that great expectation that this will all give way to seeing Christ, Christ face to face. If you don't, I plead with you on the authority of the Word of God. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin. Put your faith firmly and fully in God and follow Christ. And that means putting away the civilian stuff, the stuff of this world, and picking up the armor of God and strapping it on. It means dying to self, picking up a cross, which means death to self and death to the world and death to sin and stepping out and following Christ wherever he leads you. And as you do, you will have that hope that there is something so much better yet to come. Would you stand with me? We'll pray and then we'll sing the benediction together. Just a reminder also, there is a service tonight at 6.30.
Loving Father, we come before you again and we realize afresh, O God, no drowning man was ever saved like the salvation we enjoy through Christ. No fallen person was ever picked up and rescued like we have been rescued. No prisoner has ever been set free from any jail on the face of this earth like the salvation we have experienced as we were set free from sin and death. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, for those standing in this room this morning that don't know you, that have never trusted in you fully, that don't know what it means to be saved, I cry out to you, O God, that by the power of the Spirit of God working in them, that you will set them free. You'll open their eyes, O God, to see the wonder and the beauty of a Savior, but also to see the absolute horror, the sinfulness of sin, the filth of a stained conscience, that, Father, they might come to Christ and by the blood of Christ have a conscience that is washed clean. Father, I cry out to you again that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would do a great work in this church. Revive this church. Father, for those standing here this morning who are goats and not sheep, Father, I plead with you, you alone have the omnipotent power to transform them from goats into sheep, to take away their sin and fill them with the Spirit. Father, to take away the forlorn hope of this world and give them the hope of a glorified place with Christ in the world to come. Father, I plead with you that do what you would do a work. Father, all we can do is preach the Scriptures. All we can do is pray, O oh God, you alone must save. And we pray, O oh God, that you would do that. Father, for those who are here this morning whose hope has failed and has flagged a little bit, Lord, we pray that it would be shorn up, shored up by the Scriptures. It would be deepened and strengthened by the power of the Word of God. Father, we ask you again for a great work in this church. And we plead for it in Jesus' name. Amen.